I frequently get asked, what is your favorite episode of The Twilight Zone? Well, they're like my children. I love them all. You can't have favorites, right? I actually do have a few favorites. One of them is called, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? It's in my top five, actually. I'm just going to give you a brief description of the episode today because I hope you go home today and you watch it on Netflix. Season two, episode 28. I don't want to spoil it for you, but here's a brief description to kind of whet your appetite. During a snowstorm, two state troopers are investigating a crash in a lake, and they are led to believe that it was a UFO. So they follow the footprints leading from the crash site to a diner where a group of passengers from a bus that's headed to Boston are waiting for word that it's clear to pass a bridge up ahead. And so everyone uh, in the roadside eatery are bus passengers except for the cook who works there. But we come to find out that there's one more extra person in the cafe than there were people on the bus. And so this causes panic and fear and the stranded travelers begin trying to guess which one among them is the alien. And so they start accusing one another of being the Martian. They finally get news that the bridge is safe to cross, and so they all get back on the bus and leave. I'm not going to tell you how it ends. It's one of the best twist endings of the Twilight Zone. So I'm not going to tell you today who the real Martian is. You have to just watch it and see. But I will tell you who the real God is. It's Yahweh, the Lord. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. What we're going to see in 1 Kings chapter 18 is like something straight out of the twilight zone. And the question on everyone's mind in this chapter is this, will the real God please stand up? We're going to see a showdown between Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and Baal, the God of the Canaanites. Baal, the God of the Canaanites, under the leadership of King Ahab, the king of Israel, he has sadly become the God that the nation of Israel now loves with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Yahweh is going to straight up embarrass the daylights out of Baal in our passage today. Publicly, I mean, total humiliation. The real God will stand up on Mount Carmel. And so our big idea today is basically what God will say to the nation of Israel After this showdown with Baal on Mount Carmel, the Lord will say, Dump your idols and trust me, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And when I say Yahweh, this is God's covenant name. And as we look at our passage today, anytime you see in the Old Testament the the name Lord in all capital letters, the English translators of the Bible are letting you know that in the original Hebrew language, this is God's covenant name Yahweh. So they put it in all capital letters. So as I read today, when you see all capital letters, Lord, I'm just going to say Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. And so Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is going to publicly humiliate Baal and company. And then he will call on the nation of Israel to dump Baal and Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was another god, supposedly Baal's lover. And so Yahweh is going to tell the nation of Israel today, that they need to break up with Baal. They need to call it off. They need to dump Baal. So look at 1 Kings chapter 18, 
beginning in verse 1. And hear the word of the Lord. After many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of Yahweh, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized Elijah and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, or master, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, And Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord or my master Ahab has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you, Elijah, say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of Yahweh will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh, how I hid a hundred men of Yahweh's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as Yahweh of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So recall from a few weeks ago that the prophet Elijah told King Ahab that there would be a severe famine in the land, that the covenant curses found in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus would actually come down upon the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel had gone off to worship the false gods Baal and Ashtoreth. And so the word of the Lord appears again to Elijah, this time instructing him to go to King Ahab again. Meanwhile, Ahab and Obadiah have split up and they've gone in search of water and grass. I mean, things are so bad that the king of Israel, King Ahab, is out looking for water. He's not sending interns out to do this job anymore. That's how bad it is. So Obadiah stumbles upon Elijah and Elijah tells Obadiah to go tell King Ahab that he's on his way to see him. But Obadiah freaks out because he's afraid that if he tells Ahab that Elijah is on his way, the Spirit of the Lord might whisk Elijah away somewhere else, and then Ahab would think that Obadiah was lying about seeing Elijah. And here's why Obadiah is worried. He hid 100 prophets in some caves in order to protect them from Queen Jezebel, King Ahab's wife. And so Obadiah is already in hot water with the Ahabs. He doesn't want to take this chance. 
But Elijah comforts Obadiah and tells him that he would appear before Ahab, and Elijah kept his word. And so Elijah appears before King Ahab, and it's like one of those old western showdowns. Elijah is standing 20 feet away from Ahab, both of them outside the saloon with their hands on their holstered guns. You have to kind of picture it, and then you hear the proverbial soundtrack. That's what's happening here. You've got to use your imagination when you read the Bible. Look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Elijah said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Asherah is another name for Ashtoreth, this lover of Baal. So they finally meet and Ahab blames Elijah for all the trouble and the famine that has come upon the nation of Israel. But Elijah tells Ahab he's got it wrong. It's King Ahab who has led the nation away to worship Baal and Ashtoreth. It's King Ahab, the one who has abandoned the commandments of the Lord. He's the one who has brought all of this trouble, the covenant curses, down upon himself and the nation of Israel. And so, we should pause and relate to Ahab here. Yes, I said we should relate to Ahab. I know we often read the Bible and we relate to the good guys, don't we? We read this passage and we think, I relate to Elijah. Why is that? Why do we read the Bible and we always relate to those who do right? Why do we always relate to the good guys in a passage? We're more like Ahab than we may want to admit. Because we all, like King Ahab, have idols that we serve. Our hearts just pump them out. John Calvin said, the human heart is like an idol factory. Human beings make idols out of anything. Money, power, intimacy, approval, career, your children, your status, how many followers and likes and hearts that we get on social media. I mean, think of something, anything, and it can become an idol. So let me ask you this morning, which idol of yours has ever said to you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Which idol, heart idol of yours has ever lightened your load? Which heart idol of yours has ever really given you rest? Which idol of yours has ever led you by the hand to green pastures and still waters? None. Because no idol can do that. Oh, they promise us that, don't they? But they can't deliver. And that's why Jesus says to you today, dump your idols and trust me. The perfect response to 1 Kings chapter 18 would be to break up with our idols. To say, it's over. To say, it's not you, it's me. To look to Jesus as the only all-satisfying God there is. Because only Jesus satisfies. I mean, we know that, right, Grace? We know that. 
All of the idols that our hearts pump out, all the idols and things that we obsess over, they leave us empty, don't they? So question, what is an idol? Is an idol just some wooden trinket that you keep on your mantle and you bow down before and worship? I mean, it could be that, but it can be more. An idol can be anything that we obsess over. Tim Keller says this in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. He says, what is an idol? Is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give? A counterfeit God or idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? I highly recommend Tim Keller's book to you. In the book, Keller shows us that idols take good, God-given things and make them ultimate, supreme things. I mean, it could be your work, your job, or your family, your spouse, your kids, or your grandkids, or your career. Anytime a good, God-given thing becomes an ultimate thing, a supreme thing, that's when you know it's an idol. Anytime a good, God-given thing becomes an ultimate, supreme thing that you have to have in order to live, in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled, that's when you show that you are an idolater. And who wants to be that? Not me. But if I'm honest, I am. So let's be a church that gets honest about our idols. Let's start confessing our idols to one another, shall we? I know that's not a good church growth strategy according to the experts, right? I know it might run some people off. I've never read in a church growth book. Just start confessing your sins and your idols to one another and your church will grow. They don't talk about that. The Bible does. It might run people off if we start doing that. If we open up and get honest with one another and confess our idols. But what's the alternative really? That we grow and become a mega church where everyone is fake and lies about their problems and their struggles and their sins? I don't want that. It seems to me like Christians are supposed to be honest, right? Not fake. So let's get real. Let's get real with one another. And let's get real with the real Jesus, the real God. Let's get low before the Lord and continue to invite the Holy Spirit to come and shine His light on the darkest places of our hearts. 
Does that sound like fun? Probably not. I mean, who wants to be exposed like that, right? Who wants to admit that they have an idol problem? It's embarrassing, right? But who wants to be healed? Who wants to be set free? Who wants to laugh and dance again? In order for healing to come, in order for renewal and revival to come to your heart and to come to your life, and in order for renewal and revival to come to this church, we have to be honest with one another. We have to get real. We have to get real with one another and get real with the real God, the real Jesus of the Bible. We have to take Jesus up on his invitation when he says, dump your idols and trust me. Listen, if we want revival and renewal to come to, cra- to come to grace, and it has been. I mean, we're seeing God move. I'm hearing stories how the Spirit of God is working in people's hearts. He is moving here. This is an exciting time to be at grace. I feel sorry for everyone who came before us. This is an exciting time to be at grace because the Spirit of God is moving. It's real. It's tangible. But if we want this revival and this renewal to continue to come to grace, we have to stay busy confronting the idols of our hearts. We have to be open and honest about the things that we want so bad because we think that they will give us meaning and significance. We have to open up to others and say, I want this thing so bad because I think and feel in my heart that if I get it, I'll finally be satisfied. We've got to tell each other what those things are. And so let's do this. Let's admit our heart idols to one another crazy, huh? Someone might ask you how church was, and you can say, we admitted our idols to one another. It was awesome. I heard the story of a church that did this a long time ago. They would stand up in service, and someone would begin to confess and repent, and everybody would just cheer in joy because they're excited that someone was repenting and being set free, that you actually couldn't hear the idols that they were confessing out loud, and maybe that's a good thing. This church was excited that they got so real, so open, so honest, that people could just stand up and say, this is an idol in my life. This is a sin I've been struggling with. You could leave here and someone asks you this week how church was, and you can say, we admitted our idols to one another, and it was awesome. Let's be that kind of church. Let's talk about idols so that they lose their power so that they lose their grip over our hearts and lives. And so in your Sunday school classes and your small groups and the various meetings that you have, let's open up with one another about our heart idols. And let's answer and let's fill in this blank. If I have blank, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What is it for you? What goes in that blank? What idol have you looked to for meaning? What idol have you looked to for value? And again, it could be anything. What idol have you looked to for significance and security? Just confess it. Confess it to Jesus. Confess it to others. 
let's confess and we'll discover that we'll start getting more and more traction for healing and renewal here at this church. Another litmus test for identifying your heart idols is this. What makes you angry? That can help you identify what may be an idol in your life. I mean, there are things that can make you angry that aren't an idol. You can be angry about some things, and that's actually a good thing. Like if there's abuse that occurs or some hurt, there's a godly righteous anger about some things. But sometimes you can discover an idol through what makes you the most angry or what you stress over. What do you obsess over? Is it your finances, your future, what's going to happen, your kids, your job? What is it for you? What idol have you looked to for meaning, value, significance, and security? Confess it. Confess it to Jesus. He already knows, right? Confess it to others. Sure, it will be embarrassing. It'd be embarrassing to expose the heart idols that we have. It'll sting a little, but that's how our idols lose their power over our lives when we bring it out into His light. And that's how the healing comes. That's how the Holy Spirit starts cleaning out the junk that's in all of our hearts. And when we confess our idols, guess what? We get Jesus. When we're honest and confess our need of a Redeemer, then guess what? We get Jesus. Jesus shows up. And isn't that what you really want? More of your Lord? More of your Savior? When you confess your sin, you get Jesus. See, confession and repentance is not that bad, is it? We think confession of sin and repentance is like eating liver and drinking prune juice. It's healing. It brings joy, Christ-centered joy. Wow, who knew? A passage about Ahab and Elijah in an old-fashioned TV Western showdown could be so convicting. And that's the real showdown, isn't it? Jesus versus our idols. That showdown never ends well for our idols, does it? Why? Because Jesus is a sharpshooter. He will shoot down our idols that have captivated our hearts because He loves us and because He knows that our idols cannot deliver what they promise. Only He can truly satisfy our hearts. Speaking of old TV Western showdowns, that's exactly what happens next on Mount Carmel. Yahweh and Baal are going to finally face off. And it won't be pretty. It'll actually be pretty bloody. The real God will stand up and show up. So look at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah calls for a showdown between Baal and Yahweh, in which everyone can provide fire and burn up the animal. That God wins. But there's silence on Baal's part. And so Elijah mocks him, cry louder. Maybe Baal is sleeping. Wake him up. Or maybe he's sitting on the toilet. All day it's radio silence for Baal. He never responds. This is a picture of the emptiness of idolatry. Ahab and company are being shown the emptiness of the idols that they wanted so bad that they got handed over to them because they stiff-armed Yahweh. Listen, the worst thing that could happen to any of us is if Jesus hands us over to our idols, the idols that we want so bad. If he hands us over to the emptiness of our idols, if he hands us over to what we want. That's what he did with Ahab. And that's why Ahab went after the idolatry of Baal and Ashtoreth worship. There was something that they thought in their heart that they just had to have. Something that became more important to them than God. And so God handed them over because they were clearly stiff-arming and ignoring the very clear word of God. Listen, if we stiff-arm Jesus and we keep on stiff-arming Him and refusing Him and ignoring His very clear word, He will hand us over to what we want. That's just Romans 1 stuff there. That's just Romans 1, 101. And that's Ahab and company here. And where did it land them? 
the covenant curses spoken of in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that God said he would pour down upon his people if they walked away, they're living it now. There's a drought, no rain. They're thirsty, so thirsty that the king of the nation, instead of sending interns, the king of the nation himself is out looking for water. Maybe you have been stiff-arming Jesus in your life. Maybe you have been ignoring his very clear word, and you know it. Maybe you're thirsty because what you wanted so bad, you realize now it hasn't satisfied you. Come home today. Come home to Jesus. Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus and drink and be satisfied. I heard John Piper say once, that's what worship is. Worship is coming to Jesus and drinking, drinking, and drinking, and then coming up for air and just going, ah, that's worship. Being satisfied with all that God is for you and His Son, Jesus. I said, maybe you've been running from Jesus. You're running. You know what? You can come home today. Just turn around. Oh, He's right there. He's right behind you, following you. Jesus will have you. You can come home. You can start over today, right now. You have to go through some long process or anything. Jesus doesn't make you jump through a bunch of hoops to come back to him. You just humble yourself. Hold out the empty hands of faith and say, Jesus, help. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. That's all it takes. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. He makes it really easy for us. Just come back and say, Jesus, I need you. His mercies are new every morning. Paul said, I forget what is behind and I strain forward to what is ahead. You can do that right now. Forget whatever has happened in your life up to this moment. Forget it. Leave it behind right now and strain toward what lies ahead, which is Jesus. You can do that right now without jumping through a bunch of hoops. Isn't God good? He makes it easy for us to come back to Him. Israel was supposed to be saying to the nations, come and see that Yahweh, our God, is all satisfying. Let us tell you what He is like. Look at how good He is to bad people. It's amazing. There's no one like Him. He's actually good to bad people. But instead of doing that, Israel went to the nations and they said, tell us about your gods. And so they turned to Baal. They're about to get a rude awakening on Mount Carmel. Elijah calls everyone in close and he builds an altar. But Elijah purposely disadvantages Team Yahweh by pouring water all over his altar and all over the sacrifice. There's water everywhere. They keep dumping bucket after bucket of seawater from the Mediterranean Sea. And so Elijah is at a place where if Yahweh doesn't intervene, nothing is going to happen. Elijah can't use his wet matches to start a fire now. He is at a place where he is absolutely dependent on God. Which is a great place to be. It's a great place to be absolutely dependent on Jesus and having nowhere else to go and no other course of action. Jesus loves people like that. Jesus loves desperate people. Jesus loves Desperate churches. Jesus loves desperate churches who say, if you don't intervene, we're not going to make it. If you don't intervene, we're going to mess this up. That's how desperate we are for you. 
Jesus loves churches like that. He loves people like that. And that's Elijah here. And so he asks Yahweh for help. He asks Yahweh to show up and publicly humiliate Baal. And that's exactly what Yahweh does. Look at verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Oh, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So Elijah asked Yahweh to show up and prove that he alone is God and that Baal was a fraud. And the Lord answered. God deliberately embarrassed the idols on Mount Carmel in public. Why? Because Jesus doesn't play nice with our idols. Jesus doesn't get along with our idols. Jesus won't share us with our idols. He will not share our hearts with our idols. And so here through Elijah's ministry, Yahweh is once again calling his people back to true worship, calling his people back to true satisfaction, calling them back to glorify and enjoy him forever. Yahweh was calling them back home to true worship, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Understand this, Grace. Worship should unburden sinners. Worship on Sunday morning should unburden us, set us free. Public worship on the Sabbath, singing, praying, preaching, should unburden us, should lift our burdens and not pile on more burdens with do's and don'ts and to-do lists. Worship should be like, laying down in green pastures. Worship should be like still waters. Psalm 23 kind of stuff. Not like 1 Kings chapter 18. Because Baal worship was work. It was exhausting. It was burdensome. It was bloody. Why? Because idolatry is draining. Heart idols drain and suck the life and nutrients out of your soul. Jesus, on the other hand, offers life. He offers relief from our burdens. He offers rest. So Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Idols, you know what our heart idols say to us? First, try to find me. And secondly, I will take and take and take. Idols make terrible lovers because idols can't love you back. They can't love in return. Psalm 63 says, your steadfast love is better than life. Jesus' love is better than anything. It's better than life itself. 
Idols, on the other hand, make terrible lovers because they're controlling and manipulative and abusive. Not so with Jesus. He offers rest. And so Jesus says to you today, dump your idols and trust me. And that's what Israel did because fire came down and consumed Elijah's water-soaked sacrifice. And then all the people fell down on their faces in repentance and they declared, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And then they grabbed the prophets of Baal and slaughtered them. 450 prophets of Baal were slaughtered plus 400 prophets of Asherah or Ashtoreth were killed too. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of funerals, isn't it? Does that bother you? I know, I know. Why did Elijah have to go and ruin a good story? Killing all these people. Did he have to slaughter all these people? Couldn't they have just lined up opposite each other? Team Yahweh over here, Team Baal over here, and they just walk past each other and say, good game, good game, good game, good game. Not exactly. Remember, this was a theocracy. Yahweh was the real king, not King Ahab. And in Deuteronomy chapter 13, it says that any Israelite that forsakes Yahweh and worships another God should be put to death. They knew this. Does it bother you that 850 men had their necks slit open at the brook Kishon? If it does, it just means that you don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the real God. These men were claiming that Baal was God. That's blasphemy. The last time I checked in the Bible, God is not a fan of blasphemy. Jesus does not like it when someone or something claims to be the real God. Ralph Davis is very helpful and very convicting here. He says this about verse 40. It does not condemn God nor Elijah, but us. How does it condemn us? It condemns us whenever we look at verse 40 and simply don't get it. We read it and go into moral hysterics. We simply don't get it. The problem is not with Elijah or the Old Testament, but with us. We react the way we do because in our subliminal view, apostasy is not that big a deal. We simply don't understand Yahweh's violence against rebellion in His people. He uses Surgery, not breath mints on cancer. The problem is not God's lack of refinement, but our lack of sanctification. If our thinking were holy, we would understand such texts. The nasty episode at the Kishon testifies that we have little horror of sin, and it calls evangelical Christians in particular to repentance. So we should close our Bibles after reading 1 Kings chapter 18 and repent. And confess our sins and get real with the real Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible. Get real with the real God. Will the real God please stand up? Oh, He has. The real God, Jesus, is speaking to all of us from 1 Kings chapter 18 today. And what He's saying to us is this. Dump your idols and trust me. If we're honest... Our lives and our hearts are infested with idols. Oh, sure, we're not bowing down before some wooden idol at some altar. I mean, we're, we're too sophisticated for that, aren't we? 
Our idols are a little more refined. We sip tea and eat finger snacks with our idols, don't we? Let's be a church that doesn't play nice with our idols. Let's expose them. Let's confess them to one another and be healed. James 5.16 says, Confess your what and be healed? Your sins. Confess your sins. Bring them out into the light and healing will come. So what idol do you need to dump today? What idol do you need to break up with today? You say, i got to break this relationship off. It's not you, it's me. Remember, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. A counterfeit God, an idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so here's how you can diagnose your heart idols. Where do your thoughts drift when there was nothing else commanding your attention? What do you daydream about? What are you really living for? What are your most uncontrollable emotions? Why do you feel angry, afraid, despairing, or guilty? What do you cherish as essential to your happiness? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your own heart. That's how you diagnose your heart idols. But diagnosis is not enough, right? You need a cure. You have to replace your heart idols, break up with your heart idols, dump your heart idols, or another one will slide into its place. You have to cut it off. You gotta gotta break off that relationship. Can't just diagnose it. And so here's how you replace heart idols. You have to see Jesus as more attractive. You have to taste and see once again and over and over and over again that the Lord is good. Matthew Barrett says, How foolish it is to place our delight in that which is transient, momentarily satisfying, when the greatest pleasure, the supreme delight our souls were made to enjoy, is not only offered to us through Christ, but lasts for eternity. The eternity of God should rebuke us for thinking that something impermanent and only temporarily sufficient could be better than a God who is eternally fulfilling. May the Spirit of God open our eyes to see Jesus as the greatest pleasure, as the supreme delight of our souls that we were made to enjoy. May we taste again that Jesus is our all-satisfying treasure. To dump our idols, we have to see Jesus and love Him anew. And you can do that today right now. Just open up the empty hands of faith. Say, Jesus, help. May the Spirit of God help us dump our idols and replace them with Jesus. And may our Heavenly Father restore our awe and wonder that He saves Sinners, really bad sinners, through the perfect life and the bloody death and the resurrection of His one and only Son. 
And may we really believe that the real God really is as good as he says he is. And may we believe again that the real God is really, really good to really, really bad sinners like us. And may you leave here today totally unburdened and set free. And may you start it all over again because the battle for your heart will not end until you see Jesus face to face. The real God is so good, y'all. The real Jesus is so good to sinners like us. That should unburden you this morning. As we close, I want to triple dog dare you, okay? Because Jesus is far better than we think. And to prove that Jesus is far better than we think, I'm going to triple dog dare you to begin praying Psalm 85 verse 6, which says this, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Psalm 85 6. Write it down. And if you begin praying that, Jesus will show himself to be far better than what or how you think of him. I triple dog dare you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are far better than we could ever imagine. In this life, we really can't grasp it. Even for all of eternity, we're not going to be able to. But as in this life and as in eternity, you slowly reveal more and more of yourself to us. And so we ask you to do that. Would you free us to confess our heart idols to one another, to confess our sins to one another? And would you continue this move of your spirit here at Grace where you're setting us free, Lord? Would you help us by the power of your spirit to drag our heart idols and to drag our sins kicking and screaming into your light? And may they lose their power and their grip over our lives. Jesus, would you not revive us again that we may rejoice in you? Do it, we ask, for your glory and for our joy and for our freedom. We ask in your name, amen.